Okay, in uh, Numbers, that uh, the book is called that simply because of the numbering of the people for war as they go there. And there's just some of this I think we're going to, we'll skip over just noticing the points and then we'll zero in on, on those things that we can uh, make some application on. I think uh, the first thing to note is as he gives the uh, numbers and all is that they were numbered for war 20 years or more. And we often talk, you know, about the age of accountability before God. And I don't believe you can zero in on just one year or anything like that. Um, but we do know there is that. And that as a general rule, the way it was applied in the law of Moses, 20 uh, would have been the year. In other words, you could not be numbered for war. You was not considered uh, a man and all uh, from, from the male standpoint until 20 years of age. And... Uh, when uh, they went into the land initially, when they were going in, and God destroyed that entire adult generation because of their unbelief. But then he said that your children that did not know right from wrong, that they will go in with Joshua and Caleb. That's in Deuteronomy 1 and 39. <clears throat> and to the best that we can figure there, that was everybody under 20 years of age. And so and there's the concept of knowing right and wrong in the way that it's indicated all the way through, it's not a matter of just saying, well, this is right or wrong because it's been taught or said. You can know that at three years of age. This, somebody said this is right or wrong. But it's given from the standpoint of, of you having had experience and old enough to have made some observation so that you have come to the realization that certain things are right and you just simply know it and inherently agree with it and certain things you know are wrong. And when you reach that point that based on your own observation, your own experience with life, and your own conscience, that you have certain things you know are right and certain things are wrong, right in there you become you know, accountable before God. And at least in the Old Testament, the covenant of the letter, uh, the line was drawn at 20 years of age. Now, although it's 20 years of age, it would be numbered for battle. As we look in numbers, we find out that the, they had, the Levites, who had been set apart to be the priests of God, there was different ages given for them to do various things. Like, for example, uh, to have been a teacher in Israel among the Levites, you would have been 30 years of age. And there were other things they could do at 25. But to be a teacher, you would have to be 30 years of age. Uh, that's why that uh, John the Baptist was 30 when he began to teach. Jesus was also 30 when he, when he began to teach. All right, now when he... Numbers the tribes, uh, a number of, another thing you can note, looking at uh, verse 21, the tribe 46,500, and 23, 59,300, 24, look at that number, and 26, or 27, look at the number on 27, 74,600, look at the number on 29, 54,400, the number on 31, 57,400. Uh, 33, 40,500. Uh, 35, 32,200. And then 37, 35,400. And then look at 39, just look at the number. Look at the number on 40. Uh, the number on 42. Okay. And then the, the total number on 46, 603,550. Now there's one thing that stands out in those numbers, every number is rounded off. In other words, there is, abs the, there is no tenth digit other than a zero there. And of course, obviously, we know that would not be the case. And so we have the numbers rounded off. But now notice something else. He gives uh, 603,550 on verse 46 as a total. Okay, now come over to chapter 11 and verse 21. <coughs> And you have the term, Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I will give them meat to eat. And so here the number, 603,550. Moses over there put it at 600,000. What we note here, in the way these numbers are given, and in the way Moses uses this, in the exact same book. In other words, you don't have two authors. You've got one person given the number here. Obviously, you can see that perfect exactness 
was was not a point or not part of the thinking. They rounded off the numbers that they dealt with. All right, this thing is good to notice because it is a characteristic of the writers of the Old Testament. It's a characteristic of the Jews. It's a characteristic of people of antiquity that they round off their numbers. And sometimes those of us from the West in our culture where everything is so specific and all, we sometimes have the Bible uh, doing something that really it doesn't do. And another good example of numbers, when you read in Matthew, uh, where he says 14 generations down to such and such, and 14 generations down to such and such, and 14 down to such and such, you know. Well, if you go back and look at that in the Old Testament, you find out that's not literally so. Uh, for example, the first group that says 14, you can go back in Chronicles and you can count 17 generations. And there may have been more than that. Uh, Matthew picked out 14 of those particular generations. And he picked out 14, he picked out 14, and he just simply chose that to work with. And he rounded it off to 42. It was not 42 literal generations. Uh, you know, that may have been in the ballgame, but it's a, it's a rounded off figure. In the same way, when Bishop Usher came up with this date of 4004 B.C., going back to Adam and Eve, reasoning back from Christ, what he did, he went to the Old Testament, took those chronologies and added up all the years, and that's what he came up with, you know, after he, after he got through. Well, he, if he had noticed the very point that we're talking about, uh, he would have seen that, hey, there's a possibility there's a mistake here. We now know that, that you don't have all the generations in there, that there are gaps, and, and that the Jews did round off, and that in given a gene genealogy, they didn't necessarily give every single solitary one. There were those that they left out. They gave the key, the key ones and important ones, and there were those that they just specifically chose to, to leave out. And so that has to be kept in mind. All right, now, in some of the material put out by infidels, where they try to show a contradiction in the Bible, some of the things that they deal with is this thing of numbers that we're talking about. For example, you can read in Acts that when, uh, they, when Jacob went down to uh, Egypt, you read a number of 70-something, you know, that he went there with. Then you go back over there and read, and you find a little bit of a discrepancy, a few numbers there. Well, what you have, again, is, is, is something that takes into consideration a, a rounding off of the figures itself. Uh, when it speaks of the Israelites uh, being in bondage in Egypt, you can read 430 years, and you can read 400 years. Uh, the 430 was pretty specific, uh, but I would I would guess it was rounded off to the ten, you know, in the tens, and then the 400 was just simply a rounded off figure. If it had been 470, I believe he'd have said 500 years. And so that is a natural part of the writing, and it's it's good for Christians to know that any time that anybody has a problem with this or notices it or says anything about it, that just simply, uh, obviously. The writer is the same author as putting together the very material we're looking at. That was just simply characteristic of their writing. All right, the same is true with time. In our scientific world, we divide the days up into hours, we divide the hours up into minutes, we divide the minutes up into seconds, and then we get down sometimes to the parts of seconds. In antiquity, they didn't even think this way. There was no seconds. There was no minutes. You had your day, and then your day was divided up in parts, and the first clock... Uh, that was originated, just had one hand on it for R. That's it, there was no minute hand. Just had one hand for R, and the other would come later. And so that our, our whole concept of being so precise on every single point was just not part of the thinking of this people. When it came to ages of individuals, they were not near as precise as we are. And they could have a person uh, easily a couple of years older than what you and I would have him. By, by our reckoning, you know, and that's not even counting if they rounded it off and maybe squeezed in another couple of years, you know, that maybe he's 38 instead of 36 because of the way they reckon time, and then somebody might say he's 40, just rounded it off. And so it was just simply an approach uh, towards, uh, towards numbers itself. Uh, in the New Testament, Matthew, the gospel that was written for the Jew, primarily, to convincing that Jesus was the Messiah, one distinction between Matthew uh, and the other Gospels is the way that Matthew rounds and deals in generalities. That he's, for example, Mark zeroes in on a much more specific way and gives more of the particulars than Matthew. Matthew 
deals in generalities more than any one of the other three books. And so it's just simply a characteristic of, of the people. Uh, notice verse 47 in chapter 1. The families of the tribe of the Levi were not counted among the others. The Lord had said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. So the Levites were not numbered for war. They were set apart as a people of God. And when they went into battle, the Levites never would be numbered to do any fighting. Now, when you get into the argument that takes place today among Christians, it's been an argument all through the centuries as to whether or not a Christian can engage in carnal warfare. In other words, whether he can enter the armed forces and, for example, fight for his country. The, uh, those that, that do not believe that he should, among the various arguments they give, would be the fact that the Levites were set in the Old Testament as a type of Christians in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament refers to all Christians as the priest of God. We're a royal priesthood. And that the Levites were never numbered to war. That they were set apart for a holy use and they were not numbered for war. And when God even got ready to build the temple, we'll come to this part, uh, God, David wanted to build the temple and God didn't let him. And the reason is that he had been used as a man of war. And so Solomon, a man of peace, would build the temple. And so that has been one of the arguments that has been used by those that would believe that you should not engage in carnal warfare, along with several others, but one of them that, that, for, that a Christian, uh, regardless of whether it's right or whatnot for people in a country to defend a country, that a Christian is a pilgrim, a sojourner, a royal priesthood, that he's been set apart in a special way as a Christian here on this earth, you know, and that that would be out of place for him. Um, Let's see, the next few chapters just simply talk about the arrangement of the various uh, tribes. Uh, again, in the third chapter, he alludes to the beginning of 12 and 13 with uh, the fact that he has picked the Levites to belong to God and set apart for that use. Uh, in chapter 4, flip over to 4, verse 3, count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work of the tent of meeting. This is the work of the Kohen. He goes ahead and gives their work there. But 30 to 50. Now after 50, there will be other passages that will show that they could serve as advisors to the young or help out. But they was no longer responsible for, for carrying it out and doing it. So this was the teachers, 30 years of age, right? Well, specifically, he's talking about just ministering in the holy things there. Mm -hmm. But the Jew, it, it applied to the teachers. You know, they, they were 30. Uh, again, all through here, it simply deals with the, uh, the way the Levites were set up to carry out the work under the law, the, the worship under the law of Moses. Come over to chapter 5 and verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when a man or woman wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give all, give it all to the person he has wronged. Uh, again, we see the, the statement there, several things about it. Number one, it says that, that he had sinned against the Lord. When he wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord. We can also see how that all of this revolves around the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you, when you wrong another person, you've sinned uh, against God. Uh, remember Joseph, when the lady wanted to commit adultery with him, the statement there that he could not sin against God. But he looked at it as something, and remember David in his adultery in Psalms 51, uh, he said, made it against you and you only have I sinned. But they looked at it in, that any sin, even towards somebody else, as being a sin against God. And then the way they dealt with it, um, uh, Lamsa is very good on all of this. is the book by Lamsa in the Old Testament. It's very good on all these customs and all. And he points out that in that part of the world, they still do the same thing today, that they don't have the jails and all that we have, but if somebody's caught stealing, uh, he has to pay it all back, plus add a part to it. And now back in antiquity, if uh, some of their slaves came to be, 
because of owing somebody money that you could not pay back. And then, it, then the next step is to sell yourself in bondage to that person for a certain period of time, you know, whatever it may be. In the sixth chapter, he deals with the Nazarite vow. Uh, he was a person that had set himself apart entirely to the Lord. Uh, remember, Samson as a Nazarite had been dedicated before his birth uh, by the mother because she was barren and she prayed to God and said if she had a child that she would dedicate that first child to God. Okay, that wasn't just a, a unique thing with Samson and his mother. Uh, from what I've read in the historical sources, this was a very usual type thing. That if a man and woman were barren and they, they had no children and they prayed to God and they made the promise to God that the first son they had would be dedicated wholly to God. And, and so when, when, when she actually took and gave up Samuel to Eli the priest, she was fulfilling a vow that she had made. I'm sure that was a very hard thing for her to do, but she had made that promise and that commitment, and this was something, again, that was in keeping with the customs of the people at that time. Well, that was the, the law that God had put forth, too, wasn't it? That the firstborn, first male offspring was, uh, was his. Right, but and now so what he did as a, for the nation he took the Levites mm -hmm. instead of that. Yeah. And they had, uh, let's see, where, Jack, where would be the, uh, here it is, chapter 3 and verse 12, mm -hmm. back up there. Mm -hmm. I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites to place, in place, of the first male offering of every Israelite woman. Offspring, not offering. Yeah, offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine. For all the firstborn of mine. When I struck down the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel. And again, a good point on that. God looked at it like they owed him because he had spared the firstborn among all the Israelites. He could have taken them. And then so he said, then from this point on, that the firstborn belongs to me. Well, this business of belonging to God because he purchased you in some way was a concept that was indelibly printed on the, on the Jewish mind. And they would fully relate. In other words, some passages that we just read, the Jew took a little bit different in the New Testament, that when it refers to Christians as being bought of God, and we belong to Him, and we are His possession and all, that we probably, in our society, I'm talking about those who profess to be Christians, we probably take that a lot lighter than what it was intended. That... Uh, the Jew fully related to this business, whether it was the Nazarite that had set himself apart or the Levite that had been set apart and God had purchased him by the given life to the firstborn, that they re related to that type of language far more than we would today. And they fully, and, and the Christian is literally spoken of as one that we were headed for death, deservedly so, separated from God, and he literally paid the price to give us life. And then the statement is that we are no longer belong to ourselves, that we belong to him. And that we're a royal priesthood, that we're a holy nation, we're a people from the dwelling of God, <clears throat> that we are the temple of the Spirit, the tabernacle of the Spirit. But uh, I'd say that we, at least from what I can see in the Christian world, we glance over those terms a lot more lightly than what the people would have initially that read it, you know. In the, uh, let's see, moving up to the uh, 11th chapter. Let's see, Barbara, uh, we want to start reading there with the 11th. Read on through uh, that verse, uh, first three, and then uh, take that next three, Mark, and then drop on down uh, Nancy to about 10 and read about 12, and then Jack read on through about verse 15. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was roused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the place was called Taborah because for fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave 
other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his, his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all of these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give me meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. Okay, uh, Lamb some time ago, uh, some real good points on that, that we, we look at them grumbling and complaining, and they look back at Egypt and and everything is just, uh, you know, constantly gripe, gripe, gripe from all the way through here. Uh, although they were in slavery in Egypt, Egypt was the breadbasket of the world at this time. And it was world-renowned, just like the Midwest is our, our breadbasket, or the place in Russia that they've got, I forget the name of it, it's their breadbasket. Well, it was the breadbasket of the world. And they were the first country to make extensive use of irrigation. And so they used the Nile River, and they just simply had crops. Lamsa said that they had crops coming and going all the time. They, they were harvesting and, and planting all at the same time, and they had all kinds of different melons and leeks and onions and everything. And, of course, that comes out in the in listening to them complain. Well, here they go into a, a desert, and they're living off of the land in this, in this deserted area. Well, it's like going from riches to poverty from their standpoint. On the one hand, they're out of slavery, but they're not eating near as good as they did back in Egypt. They don't have their houses or anything like that. In other words, they actually had it plush in Egypt in comparison to what they've got it now. And they're actually a rather soft people for what God, God wants them to do. Well, I thought Lamson made a good point, too, in that... Uh, that remember that because of their lack of faith, we'll get to that in a couple of chapters, they, they could not go into the land of Canaan. And he points out that this group would not have whipped, you know, the Canaanites and all. That they number one, they they they've never warred. They they've never they've never been any wars or handled uh, anything and, and they have just been had everything given to them in Egypt other than, you know, they had to work and everything. But they've never gone out to war. They've never gone out and lived off the land like this. And they were really maybe in comparison to a lot of the people in this part of the world, a soft people. But the big thing, of course, was their lack of faith, and God's trying to build that. Well, when God destroys that adult generation, then this young generation that's really going to go in and take the land of Canaan, they are people that have been reared in the desert. And, and they, not only they've been reared in the desert, they've had to trust in God from a day-to-day -day basis. It's no accident that God didn't want them storing up anything. Remember that they were condemned for storing up food. He wanted them to live on a day-to-day -day basis. So this generation that would go in with Joshua was a real rough group that had lived in the desert without all the advantages that they had in Egypt and had learned to trust God in his entirety, that they fully trusted God. And so they would have been a people that had proved God day by day by day and had seen him come through. They were very hardened people. They knew and understood the land. In other words, God would have himself a, a, providentially prepared the way to take in the right people to defeat and conquer the land itself. But anyway, they're, they're grumbling here, and God is going to give them some meat to eat. We get over here in, uh, now in the 11th chapter. Starting with verse 29, Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord uh, uh, would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. And it brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk. Now, the King James says two cubics. I mean, so it's, he says two foot high above the ground as far as a day's walk. And so the quail come in from the sea. And again, you read this, 
And I don't like the first time that I read it as a going through it, you know, you think, well, what happened here? Is this an act of providence or did God perform a miracle and he just bring in all these millions of quail? And then, of course, the statement is that you've got quail three foot high for as far as they could walk there, you know. And that doesn't quite make sense. Well, I thought Lamsa was good on this, and I'll read his, his comment. He says, uh, two cubics high simply means plentiful. In the east, the people say the bread on the table was several cubics high, which means that the bread was abundant. Or the people in the east say the food on the table was nigh to my was high up to my nose, which means I ate plenty. The Aramaic-speaking people never take these sayings literally. They know that the speaker or writer is expressing himself in figurative speech. Just as in English, one may say, I met a man who is rolling in money. If the quail were two feet high, then the whole region, a day's journey round about the camp, would have been covered with quail. In such case, it would have been impossible for the flocks and the herds to graze and the people to walk, which is true. The flocks and the herds generally graze a few miles from the camp. The flocks of quail came from Europe, from the European countries, to winter in the warm Sinai and Arabian deserts, just as they still do today. The birds, exhausted by flying over the Mediterranean, fell to the ground. And the author of the book of Numbers states that there came a wind from the Lord and brought the quail in from the sea. Many times when the birds are exhausted by flying more than 200 miles nonstop, they fall into the sea on the beaches as if they are dead. They are picked up by the people and eaten. The Lord brought the flocks of quail and the wind at the right time when the people were craving meat. God met the need by causing the wind to blow towards the camp. Well, I thought that was uh, interesting. I didn't know that, that uh, even to this day in that area, that uh, you have, just as we have birds that fly south here, that you have the quail that leaves Europe and crosses the Mediterranean and goes down to winter in that part of the country. And he said it was a common occurrence, and it still happens that that the birds, when they get there, they're literally exhausted from having covered that, and so they just fly down, and they make their easy prey for the people to come and pick them up. And so the all that God would have needed, and it's strictly within the realm of providence, is to ensure that the wind was such that it carried them into the right place. But I thought that was interesting. Now, he's got uh, some also, I won't take the time to read that, and all, but he's got some very interesting comments on the manna, too. And he believes that, uh, that that was tied in with the nature of that area and uh, that it was in other words it was something a completely new experience and all but it tied in with the the nature and with the desert and with the natural phenomenon you know within within the area itself in fact personally the the more I read uh, a lot of things going through here uh, you know that uh, I tend to lean more and more in the direction that a number of these things were brought about in a providential way and, it, and sometimes the problem has been simply the use of the language as we read it, and, you know, from, from our standpoint, as opposed to the way they actually understood it and meant it at that time. Uh, when he used the term like uh, uh, saying that you know, in the Aramaic language, to say something is two foot high, you're just saying there's a lot of it. No, I thought, you know, the same thing. Remember when you get to Revelation and it speaks of the blood being so high and flowing and everything like that, and you think, well, of course, we, we've already figured out that that can't be a literal possibility and all, but yet it has been preached as a, as a literal type thing, when in reality, from the Aramaic use of the word, he would just simply, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed, and that would be it. Again, we do the same thing, what was that? I told you a million times. Yeah. Oh, there's, uh, I, it'd be interesting to take the time and just list uh, the many, some of the hundreds of idioms that, that we use on just a regular basis in our own vernacular. We don't even think about it, you know, whether it's uh, he, he blew his top or whatever it may be that we just constantly over and over and over use and, and we just know that everybody understands us and every single solitary people have those same kind of idioms and they, that they use in the right way, raining cats and dogs or whatever it may be. And another thing I think to keep in mind too on reading those statements that it was not, we're not, it was not educated people that made these statements. These are the common people 
that's speaking out of the common vernacular, you know, that they have in that, in that day. Okay, in the 12th chapter, uh, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. And he married a Cushite. And so they began to challenge him and claim to be on an equal basis. And look at verse 3, it says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I think it's very unlikely that Moses wrote that. And it just shows again the... Uh, the fact that the material dealing specifically with Moses said and all, that although we refer to this as the book of Moses, that Joshua has had a big part in compelling here. And of course, also we're going to read the death of Moses. Now, another interesting thing that Lamsa points out, and you can also read it in the other uh, books on authorship and all, and that is that uh, in antiquity, when it came to giving credit for authorship, you did not have to write a particular book to get credit. If you supplied the material and supervised the putting together of the material and everything like that, and, it, and, and then some of it was even about you and all, then your name is what went on it. And that's uh, over the years, I know it used to disturb me when I first became a Christian, to sit in a class and realize that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's nothing in the Bible that tells you that that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call that first gospel Matthew, and we call it Mark, and we call it Luke, and we call it John. And the only source you got is in the secular, you know. They just simply didn't write and uh, reveal themselves in the, in the way that we did. They, the important thing to them was the information. And if Matthew was over a group of scribes, and he was dictating some, and he had other materials, and he was furnishing some of it as an eyewitness, and he wrote some of it itself, and they put it all together in a particular school of scribes there, it would, be, it would be considered to them the work of Matthew. And the same with Luke or Paul. In fact, several of Paul's letters, the guy that's writing it actually identifies himself at the end and says, I, Tertullus, who write this letter. Also, you know, send, send my readings. Paul's pacing back and forth in that cell, dictating it. And this guy's simply writing it, writing it down. And of course, he's dictating Arabic, going into Greek, and then we're... Read it, in, read it in English. Obviously, the important thing is to get the message itself and not to be thought of in this very legalistic way that you know, many, have tried, many have tried to use it, from what, at least from, from what I can see. Uh, they rebel against Moses. Uh, God rebukes them very strongly. Uh, Miriam is made leprous. We see something of the character of Moses in that Moses actually prayed for her uh, after she was made and leprous and rebelled against him and God went ahead and cured her. In the 13th chapter, well, by the way, when he says in verse 8 that when he speaks to Moses, he speaks face to face as opposed to speaking through dreams and visions and all to others, they literally understood that, that, that it was not, in other words, God is a spirit. It's just that, that Moses was communicated with and direct, easy-to-understand words. There was no dreams or visions that he had to interpret. It was just the direct words itself, and that's the way that they, they understood it. The 13th chapter, uh, they pick out men to go in to spy out the land. Uh, in the next verses, he lists all the various men that went in from each of the tribes. Okay, then they come back with the report, and they went into the land, they found out, of course, it was very prosperous, just like God said, but they also found out that they had a strong people and that the people were bigger than they were and they had armed cities and they did not feel that they could stand against them. And so we see, that, again, their lack of faith. Two people stand out then. And look at verse 30. Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And so Caleb, by his answer, we can see that Caleb knew there was more of them too. But Caleb looked at it from the standpoint that it was God with them and the others by themselves. And we see something in the difference between walking by faith and walking by sight. These people believed in God just like Caleb did. And they, they intellectually believed in God and believed in God and had been with them. But they had not put their still had not put their trust in God, they still had to see things, it's just like food, 
they believed what they saw, and, and that was it. And so it is here. They looked at the situation, and in their eyes, the people were more numerous. They were bigger. They had walled cities. They didn't stand a chance. Uh, Caleb and Joshua looked at the same situation and said, they're nothing before us because God is with us. And so to walk by faith rather than sight is to take God at his word rather than just simply looking at your own intellect and, and the way you could figure it out you know, from, from your perspective. But also an interesting thing, Caleb and Joshua didn't have any more evidence than the other people. They, they all had, had seen the miracles and experienced the same thing. Look at chapter uh, 14. Uh, let's see, Louise, read that first, uh, first four verses there. <clears throat> that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, then you see verse 5, Moses and Aaron <coughs> fall face down in front of the whole assembly. <coughs> uh, Joshua comes there. Uh, obviously, this generation has very, very little faith in God, despite all of the miracles and on. So notice now in the 14th chapter in verse uh, 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. And so that, again, we can see that the miracles took place for the purpose of producing belief. The condemnation of these people was that they had seen the miracles and still had not responded in, in belief. Another interesting thing is that God would not have expected faith out of them had they not had the evidence for it. And this is the same principle like you read in, uh, with Jesus in John 15, verse 24. If I had not performed among you the miracles that no one else had done, then you would have an excuse for your unbelief. But now there, there was no excuse because they, they had actually seen, seen the miracles. So we see that when it comes to belief, God gives a certain amount of evidence. If you're not aware of that evidence, if you haven't come in contact with it, well then uh, you can be excused from it. But once you have had opportunity to evaluate that, God, who made us in his image and knows our minds and how it works, expects response to that. And for example, when it comes to believing in God as creator, Paul said that man was without excuse because the invisible God was declared for the things that are. And then he goes ahead and he elaborates on that just like David did in the Old Testament, that with our own God-given intelligence, we can, we can evaluate and say that something doesn't come from nothing, something exists, something had to always be. Light begets life. For every effect, there has to be a cause equal to or greater than the effect. And so Paul's conclusion is that man has absolutely no excuse, that the evidence is there. And then in the same vein that, uh, that God has always given, and I think, again, important in here, the, the point that God does not expect belief until you had, had evidence. I don't uh, uh, have any problem with unbelief regarding Jesus among people who have not yet heard the evidence. And I think that uh, Christians have uh, failed tremendously short in actually studying and presenting the evidences to the very people that they, that they want, want to reach. Okay, over anything in the, up through that 14th chapter, is there anything we skipped over that anybody would like to? This, uh, in chapter 14, just right past this part you were talking about in 11, 12, uh, God tells Moses, I will strike them down and play with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And then Moses uh, says, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. 
and it goes on. It looks like Moses talks to the Lord into changing his mind. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we remember Abraham. Uh, well, of course, God knew what he was going to do in advance, but uh, what we see there is just like what James tells us in James 5, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man developeth much, that part of God's will is to work through righteous people. And one of the ways that God builds your faith. I mean, it's true that faith comes by hearing the word, by examining the evidence and all. But then, one of the ways that God actually encourages and increases your faith uh, is through the answering of prayers and all. And it is absolutely God's will to work through. In fact, one of the dangers, I think, of, of uh, on the one hand, trying to show the falsity of these people that claim all these miraculous powers that they don't have, but by the same time, token to try and do that in such a way to as to not cause people to think that you're doing away with the power that you have in prayer with God, you know, and that uh, there's no question, but that the New Testament as well as the Old Testament teaches very plainly that that God actually wants us to pray. And John said that this is a boldness that we have, that if we ask anything in keeping with his will and we know that he hears us, then we have the petition that we ask of him in 1 John 5, 14, 15. And then in uh, 1 John 3, 21, 22, he says, when we pray, we know that he hears us because we keep his commands and do the things that are pleasing to him. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 3, uh, spoke of the fact that the eyes of the Lord are toward those that do his will and his ear in tune to their prayers. And so all the way through, prayer is set forth as the privilege of, of a righteous person. And there's no question here. In fact, this is only one of several times where Moses actually uh, prayed. Remember Elijah? Prayed and it didn't rain. Prayed and it did rain. Uh, he wanted the people. He knew from the law of Moses that it was part of God's will to withdraw rain when people were in sin and rebellion against him. And so Elijah just plain got fed up with the lack of response to his preaching and the sin. And so he just simply prayed that it wouldn't rain. And then, and then when he prayed, and it didn't rain until he actually prayed, and it rained, and God was putting his stamp of approval on him as a, as a prophet of God. And, of course, the thing with Abraham several times, you know, talked with God. Well, Luke, did, well, God knew he wasn't going to destroy him. Oh, yeah. When he said he, that. Uh, he, in other words, by rights, he should have. Uh, that they've already rebelled against Moses, just like when he took a wife. They didn't like the color of her skin, and so they, they were rebellious there and all. But uh, from God's standpoint, he's just saying that to, to what I can see, it'd be just as easy for God just destroy them and take the faithful people there and, and go ahead and build a nation. Well, the interesting thing, though, is although these people live, God really does that. He's going to wind up destroying that entire adult generation and he's going to take Moses and Caleb and Joshua, three faithful adults, that's all. He'll kill every one of the rest in the, in the wilderness. And then he'll take those children and raise them up, and then he'll take that group of faithful believers and take them into the land. But he, he won't use the unbelievers. Okay, so, okay, 15 says, If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people to the land he promised them on oath. He slaughtered them in the, the desert. So he didn't kill them all at one time. He right. killed them all, just let them die all. Right. And they, in fact, uh, hold your place here and flip over to uh, Deuteronomy 1 and uh, beginning with verse, let's see. Verse uh, 35 uh yeah, because he's alluding to this very incident we're talking about. I've already read that verse 34 through 36. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, Not a man of this evil generation shall, shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. 
Okay, and then he mentions in verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, because of his faith. And then look at verse 39. And your little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. By the way, this is a good verse also that uh, did you have that on research? I don't know how much plainer he could state it that uh, you have to reach an age that you're accountable before God. And if you do not know right from wrong, another thing this verse would take in is the, the person that is retarded or autistic or whatever to the extent that they simply do not have an understanding of right and wrong, except based on what somebody says is right and wrong. They're simply not accountable before God. But again, that tying in with what he pointed out here, that he did kill that generation, and, but it was not all at one time. And he would take every one of their lives and then just take their children and the faithful one and go, go in. Any other things up through the 14th chapter? Okay, look at verse 20 there on the 14th where he sums up again the same thing we just read over in Deuteronomy after the statement by, and the prayer by, Mo, by Moses. The Lord rep replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs that I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land that I promised on oath to the forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. And again, we see this principle of salvation by faith. Obviously, all imperfect people, but, and, and notice it wasn't just that they had unbelief, but it was, they had unbelief, he said in verse 22, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed and, and, dis, and dissipated and tested, not one of them will ever see the land. So they had actually, he makes it clear, that their unbelief was after they had seen all the evidences. I believe in the New Testament, your, the passage when it talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is uh, that, you know, the sin that would not be forgiven and all. At the time that was given, Jesus was presenting evidence that he was the Son of God with the miracles. And they pointed, they saw the miracle. And they couldn't explain it. And so they looked at him and they said, you do that by the power of the devil. And then that's when he pointed the finger back at them and it was this thing of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The thing of it is, the very evidence that he was using and, and doing it by the power of the Spirit of God, they sought an explanation and gave credit to the devil. And so they blasphemed, belittled the work of the Spirit. Well, there was, and as far as anybody worrying about uh, you know, I've met individuals that were worried that maybe I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Uh, that person is thinking that way is the last person has to think about it. That this was a willful, premeditated pushing aside of evidence. Well, there's no way they could be saved. They pushed aside and blasphemed the very Spirit that was given the evidence to, to, to save them. And then Jesus went ahead and made the statement that, that to this evil and adulterous generation, you're getting one more sign, and that's the sign of Jonah. And then he made it clear that after that resurrection, those that didn't respond to that, that was it. That was God's final sign to mankind. And of course, when we present the message now, 2,000 years later, all our evidence revolves around his death, burial, and resurrection. That either they accept that uh, on the evidence that God has given us, or they just simply re reject it and, and go their way, one or the other. Interesting, too, to me when I think about the miracles and then the prophecy and all the evidences about Jesus. When you, today, we want things with a scientific proof rather than an evidential proof. And the thing is, evidential proof is just as assuredly true as, as scientific proof. It's just that you cannot duplicate it in, the, in a scientific sense, but, it's, but you cannot know without any doubt in your mind. But there's a difference. You cannot reject scientific proof, even with dishonesty. 
I mean, you can literally, dogmatically, no if and but show that H2O is water, H2O2 is hydrogen peroxide, and other things like that. And you just lay it out before. It doesn't take any belief, any faith, or anything like that. It's just there. When you deal with something from the standpoint of evidence and want a commitment based on that, you depend on the honesty of that person's heart and whether or not they're actually looking for what's right. Because if you're not willing to be honest, it's sort of like the... Uh, the uh, parent who says, I don't care how many people that tell me my child did such and such, I won't believe it unless he tells me. You see, well, that's what I dealt with with the church here, you know, and, uh, when, we, when the man that we went through fellowship from and his, his own mother. I don't care how many people, I don't care what anybody says, until he says he did it, he didn't do it. Well, she would never be convinced. She, either he has to tell her or she has to see it with her own eyes. Well, you're talking about the past. And so she's not going to see that with her own eyes. And so you can do that with anything you want to. And in the real world, like with juries and all, we couldn't even function if we, if we operated that way. But it is an interesting thing to me that in the field of evidences, Christian evidences, that the whole nature of the way God has revealed himself, it requires honesty and seeking after truth on your own part. And if you want to be dishonest with it, he'll, like, like them, they could see the miracle and they say, well, you do it by the power of the devil. Well, they had that right. They could make that statement that he did it by the power of the devil. Okay, uh, in the 15th chapter, this is one we've looked at uh, earlier when we was uh, going through Leviticus, but Nadab and Abihu, and in the area of fellowship, I think it's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. And it's one area of fellowship, and I think you build on it from here to the New Testament. But uh, I just don't know how much plainer that God could have said that there's a distinction between sins that people willfully commit and sins that they commit in ignorance. Uh, Nancy, start there with verse 22. And let's read on and let's see, we'll go on through verse 31. Let's go on through verse 31. Now, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands, the Lord get, gave Moses any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the, day of the Lord, from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come. And if this is done unintentionally throughout the community being aware of it, without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with this pres prescribed grain offering and drink offering and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, and they will be forgiven, for it is not intentional, and they have brought it to the Lord for their wrong, an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven, because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a young, a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally, and when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether it is a native-born Israelite or an alien. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person is, must be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the, despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Okay, so a summation there that... The, literally uh, the assumption that there would be times when individuals, times when the priests, times when the leader, times when the entire community would sin through ignorance. When they became aware of it, they could repent of that. They couldn't do it until they became aware of it. And of course in Leviticus, he specifies that over and over again when they become aware of it. But then for the person that defiantly, he's the person that they break fellowship with, excommunicate, whichever word you want to use. They didn't associate that with that person. He was totally cut off from the person. All right, now, with this same principle in mind, the first observation we'd make when we go to the New Testament, that this is the covenant of the letter. We have the covenant of the Spirit in the New Testament. If the covenant of the letter makes allowances for sins committed in ignorance, then it would be, to my mind, almost absurd to think I'm going to come to the covenant of the Spirit where love and mercy is the thing rather than the exception and, and not find the same thing. In other words, you'd have to say 
that if, it, if you don't have the same thing in the New Testament, then the law of Moses was more merciful when it came to ignorance than the, than the New Testament. And whether you're talking about the law of Moses or, or the New Testament, you're still talking about the same process. Human beings, I don't care how smart they are, they acquire their information through reading and studying and being taught, and, the, and then they act on it, and they, they cannot act right until they perfectly until they understand things in the right way. All right, now think of some of the verses in the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, verse 26, he says, If you continue to willfully sin, there remaineth no more sacrifice to sin. For sin, he could have just as easily said, If you continue to sin. Well, now, if he had said, If you continue to sin, there remaineth no more sacrifice for your sins. Well, what about that? Everybody be lost. Because after we become Christians, we do continue to sin. But he says, if you continue, not only that, if you did, he says, notice again, if you continue to willfully sin, there remaineth no more sacrifice for your sin. Well, if you're not sinning, you don't need a sacrifice in the first place. And so you'd have a contradiction of terms, you know, that like he says, if you continue to sin, there's no more sacrifice. Well, the only person that needs a sacrifice is the sinner. And so the only way you can even construct that is the way that he did, and that is with the willful sinning. And so a plain statement that willful sinning, if it's not willful, it's covered by the sacrifice. And then in uh, James 4 and verse 17, to him that knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. And then again in uh, John 15, verse 22, if I had not spoke these things among you, then you would have an excuse for your sin. But because I have spoken to you, you have no excuse for your sin. In John 9 and verse 41, if you were in the darkness, you would not have sin. But because you see the light, then you have sin. Talking to the Pharisees, in other words, that, that if you people hadn't seen what, you, what you've been given, if you were literally in darkness, you would not be accountable. But yes, you know, you, you know what's right, and therefore you're, you're, in, you're in sin before God. And, and again, Paul's statement that God expects what a man has and not what he has not. And, and uh, that's, look at the example of the woman uh, in Luke who, out, who gave just a few pennies and outgave all the rich because it represented all that she had. And we see this principle of God looking on us and keeping with whatever ability that we have. Uh, the parable of the talents. Uh, the one talent, the two talent, the five talent, and you look at what's there, and again, the principle's the same. The more you've got, the more God expects of you. Another passage, Luke 12 and verse 47. The man that knew his master's will and did not do would be beaten with many stripes, and whereas the servant who did not know his master's will would be beaten with few. Well, God's not beating anybody in either case. What Jesus is doing He's taken something out of their own experience to convey this thing about accountability based on your understanding of information. They knew that, that if a master had told a servant to do something and he didn't do it, that he would be beaten and beaten hard. On the other hand, if the servant did not do what the master wanted done because he had not been told, well, the master might get on his case. He might even, might even be mad and have him whipped but he's not going to be severely beaten or anything. The master's going to take into consideration, well, he wasn't given the information. And so Jesus just simply calls on an experience out of their own life to convey this principle that we're talking about, that the more you know, the more you have the ability to know, the more accountable that you, that you become before God. And I think that principle is true all, all the way through Old and New Testament. That's why that today that on any area, it's one thing to say that you believe a person is wrong in some area. I'm talking about somebody that is, that, is on, that is in Christ. It's one thing to say that you believe he's wrong. It's another thing to say that you believe he's lost. That's entirely different, that, uh, that uh, this person can be wrong on any number of things and yet still be just as saved as, as you are, and we ought to be thankful for that because that means we can be wrong in some things and, and be, be saved too. The interesting thing to me on that is the people that will not allow it to others they always want it for themselves because if you ask any one of them, even the most devout legalist, are you absolutely positive that you're right on every single solitary point? I haven't had anybody yet to tell me yes. You know, so obviously they, they, they believe there's going to be something there. Any other comment on those principles there?
Okay. Uh, I think uh, on that one more, a few more points on that principle. One of the things that it's an understanding of this and a lack of recognition here that has allowed some groups to work together despite their differences. In other words, you're uh, like in this National Federation of Decency, uh, the Campus Crusade for Christ, you've had uh, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, etc., who have pretty well worked behind that because the, the people that have been involved in that understand that our differences on some individual doctrines does not affect your salvation in Christ and all they know. The groups that never participate with other groups are those that uh, do not have that understanding and they're very limited. You'll, you'll never find, for example, you'll never find uh, the Jehovah's Witness cooperating with other groups. You're not going to find the Mormons cooperating and, and working with other groups and all. You're not going to find many churches of Christ cooperating and working with other groups and all. And by not doing that, it just simply shows this, this very narrow and now be okay if it was right. But I believe wrong attitude that, that anybody that's wrong on some particular point that I think I'm right on, well, he's just simply lost and it's just not the, not the man for the job. But the reason that a lot of them can cooperate is because they have, at least what I believe, is a proper understanding of fellowship among Christians. In the 16th, we'll just briefly hit it and then call it uh, for tonight. In the 16th chapter, uh, Korah leads a rebellion against Moses, and again they try to put themselves as a on a par with Moses. They claim to be prophets of God, and God will identify Moses in verse 29. We have this statement: If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens up his mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive to the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Okay, and of course Moses has them pull away and the ground literally swallows these people up. And again, what God is doing, keep in mind that God knows that he's not only going to use Moses now, but after Moses dies... He wants these words passed on as the word of God and carried on down. And so it's, it's all important to God that he calls these people to reverence and respect Moses as a prophet of God. And I think that's, you have the same principle in the New Testament when the woman lies to Peter and is struck dead. The whole point is God knows that he wants the writings of Peter and Paul and those apostles carried down and that's it, that is, is his word. And he just simply cannot tolerate any that same thing with Nadab and Abihu as priest and also God when he's revealing himself through a prophet whether it's Moses or one of the other prophets or the apostles later on that he makes it very clear that this is a very special individual remember another time with Elijah that there were several hundred people that were killed when they challenged him as a prophet of God that it was very important with their information coming on down through the generations excuse me this is the guy the election committee and he said, is it okay for them to start my new key about um, 8 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, what time were you going? Yeah. I told him 9, 11, going to be there at 8 o'clock. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, um, uh, when I debated, I had a couple of public debates with men who claimed that they were prophets of God and that they had worked miracles and, and everything like that, and yet there were all kinds of people, including myself, challenging them and telling them that, you know, they didn't have those powers, etc. Remember Paul in, the, in uh, Acts, how that when Bar-Jesus was following around and saying that he was a false teacher, that Paul turned and struck him blind on the, on the spot there? that one of the things I pointed out that uh, if these people uh, were what they claimed to be, they would be unique in that when God actually revealed his message through these prophets and apostles in the Old and New Testament, he never stood idly by and allowed them to be challenged without showing in some way. Remember Elijah when uh, the prophets of Baal and in fact just about all of Israel had been led into idolatry 
And they had that big debate, and remember how that uh, he called on God to ignite the fire in a miraculous way, and then how Elijah himself took the lives of over 400 prophets of Baal. But from God's standpoint, that every one of the men that he was identifying as a spokesman for him, in every possible way, he, through miraculous evidences, he made it clear to all those that come in contact with him, so they would stand back in awe and respect, and then would even carry their writings on down. Any other uh, comments anybody has before we call it for tonight? Okay, let's, uh, let's see now for, let me see how far I think we get depending on the content. Let's uh, finish Deuteronomy uh, Numbers for next time. Okay, we'll finish Numbers at least, and then maybe get into the first couple of chapters in Deuteronomy also.